Welcome to Scintillations, the podcast where we explore hot takes on the business of branding, consumers, and culture. Each week, we talk to the top minds from businesses shaping tomorrow, cultural thought leaders, and people with an eye out for what's next. Whether you're a marketing professional, entrepreneur, or simply curious about the forces shaping the world of consumer business, we've got you covered. From the latest trends in consumer behavior, to the cutting-edge strategies used by the world's top brands, we'll unpack it all, giving you the insights you'll need to stay ahead of the game. So, join us for scintillating conversations that will help you navigate the ever-changing landscape of modern business, including developments in artificial intelligence tools, like this voiceover. And now, your host, award-winning brand builder, Erica First. Good morning, Victoria. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Great. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Why don't we get started by you telling us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. So my name is Victoria Kennedy. And before about two-ish years ago, I was a product leader, mostly at early stage startups and also consulting for Fortune 50 companies, really focused on getting products from idea to product market fit. I started my career in gaming and I was lucky enough to be there at our second game where it was in beta, it was the highest wrestling game at the company. And I just kind of fell in love with how does a product grow and how do you go from the earliest stages into really hitting maturity. And so I just kind of stuck with that with my career. But over my time in technology, I saw a couple of key issues that really frustrated me and I wanted to change those. So I moved into venture. And so I met my co-founder Isabel Seal in 2017 on a company called Hustle, which was the first peer-to-peer texting company. If you live in the U.S., why you get all those fun texts during every election cycle. So you're welcome for that. And then we just really had some similar views on what we'd like to change about tech. And so we decided to go into venture because we realized, you know, that's you got to go where the money is if you want things to change. And so we built, we're building right now an investment firm called Seed Harvest Ventures, where we invest in women of of color building software companies at the preceding seed. That's great. And so today we're going to be talking about, as you sort of introduced, the importance of consumers in product development. It seems like a no-brainer that a company wouldn't, you know, forget their consumers in the process of designing, but it's not. You have experiences that are, can you tell us about some of them? Sure, I have plenty. And I think what people forget is that this happens at every stage of of companies, right? And so I think it's about product market fit where people think, oh, we did it once, we never have to do it again. No, you're constantly doing it. You're constantly trying to mine product market fit in new product, new markets, and you're constantly trying, you need to constantly have a feedback loop with consumers to make sure you're on the same page. So I can, I could talk about many stories, but one, I think initially that comes out from earlier in my career, when I was starting to move into more senior roles, I was looking into kind of product roles and I actually got in late stage interview with a IOT focused company. And throughout the, the conversation, it was clear that they had plenty of funding and we were talking and I was talking to the CEO who was an engineer. They were basically building, trying to build hardware and software that measured and manufacturing companies different metrics. And so could basically warn people where things were off in the manufacturing space. And I was walking through talk, they were talking me through their current clients and their pilots. And they're like, yeah, people think it's cool, but they can't really figure out what to do with it. And I was like, 
wait, are you hiring a product person to for a solution that you've already built and figure out what problem you're solving? He was like, yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I was like, yeah, I'm not taking this role. <laughs> right? It's We're going to cool. need you to reverse engineer this into being relevant. <laughs> I will absolutely, absolutely not do that. And so I've seen that at, at kind of in my own career, but even at companies where something that's interesting that I think a lot of, so right now I work with a lot of early stage founders and I think people also misconstrue the idea of listening to consumers with doing exactly what consumers ask. So I was advising a company a couple years ago via Techstars and they were a cybersecurity company really focused on data security, but like within, with file sharing basically. And they were talking about the feedback they were getting from customers. And every week I would talk to them and they'd be like, well, this customer said this, so I think we should do this. And they were just completely changing what they were doing. And I was like, hey, so like the, the thing is you listen to customers and then you decide whether or not you want to solve the problems that they're talking about, right? But you don't change your, your company every time someone gives you feedback. And I literally made them go to a bar. I was like, you guys need to, there's three of them. It was two co-founders. CTO. And I was like, hey, you guys need to go lock yourselves in a room until you figure out what it is that you believe in, what's your hypothesis that you're testing, and then come back out. And they called me the next day. They're like, so we went to a bar and we stayed there for four hours until we got it together. And I was like, thank you so much. <laughs> uh, and so something that I've learned as well is I think a lot of times we tell people to listen to their customer, but we don't actually tell them what to listen for. Right what you're listening for with customers is not necessarily for them to say, Hey, you're not going to, Hey, do you want this slice of pizza? And then from the go to yes, no, you're understanding why they may or may not want that and how would they use that in their lives. And that's really important. I talk about this a lot with product, other product managers, as well as founders, where I'm like, you don't know the full story of a customer unless you know both what they say and what they do. And if you don't know why they do those things, you don't really, you can't really make a good decision and you're never going to, especially the early stage, you're never going to have a hundred percent of the information, but you want enough information to make at least a solid hypothesis around what you should be doing. Yeah. And I think just to, to underline something you said there about the what versus the why, uh, this is a point that I'm constantly making with clients and throughout my career is that what is one thing but if you don't understand why you can't replicate it right <laughs> you can understand what happened but unless you know what caused it what you know what's behind it what's the thinking what's the driver what's the motivation you must dig in and ask why at every venture in order to understand okay well then here's how we can then shift it or predict it or respond to it but if it's just what then you're going to be constantly guessing and keeping your fingers crossed that it's the, the right guess. So now you have your own fund now that you're working with, correct? Yes. So how have you taken what you've learned from the past on what not to do? Do you have a process that you do? Do you work with specific companies? Yeah. So for our fund, we have a, a process that we've outlined from once we first get introduced to a company, either they submit a pitch to deck to us, or we meet them at an event, or someone recommends them to us. And then we kind of put them through a series of meetings to decide whether or not we want to make an investment. 
the thing that we look for in our very first meeting, and I think is pretty applicable to this conversation, is because is we invest precedency. So people are not at product market fit. A red flag is if someone thinks they're at product market fit because they're not. It takes a long time and it's very hard. And just because you have revenue doesn't mean you're product market fit, right? What we really look for though, that early in those early stages in that first phone call is how well do they understand the problem that they're trying to solve and who has that problem and how much do they know about that market? And so we're looking for super in-depth knowledge on that problem statement and on that customer and on that market. And then we're looking at a kind of high level at first, just does that solution match that problem they're talking about, right? Because there's a number of times where people will say, hey, we're really focused on, for instance, returns for major retailers. And then their solution is a marketing tool for product marketers at companies. You're like, how does that fix that problem? And they're like, oh, I'm not sure. And you're like, okay, cool. I'll go think about that more, right? So that's a really key thing that we think about. And then once we, like, if we decide to move forward in the conversations, then we do what we call our product demo for B2B companies, we have them basically demo the product to us as, they were, as if they were a customer. And then for consumer companies, they demo it to us and then come to us with a, problem, a, problem, a product problem that they have and they're working through because we're looking for is adaptability and how, because at that early stage, most likely the solution that you built isn't the, the right one to get you to product market fit with your early adopters. And so how much have you already taken in feedback and change? How much, how how loosely associated to the solution are you, but really focus on the problem. That's what we really look for in founders. And how do you, do you have some kind of traction already? So do you have users? Do you have revenue? Those are really key things that we look for. And then subsequent meetings are really digging into your business model, like your team, how you built that team, like your plans for the future, your exit mindset, yada, yada, yada. But those first two key ones, I think, are really pertinent to this conversation because especially in the early stage, you don't have the data of a series B company where you can say, here is our revenue for the past two years and therefore we can project X. Here's our customer for the past two years, right? You probably had dozens of customers and have them probably are not your ideal customers, right? And so the thing that I'm looking for and that we're looking for mostly at that early stage is how well do you learn how do you create feedback loops to incorporate your learnings on a continuous level? Because your biggest job as an early stage founders is, is to figure out how to learn. And I think what's been really interesting, kind of really focusing on founders in this stage of my career, instead of kind of flipping back and forth where I was doing, because previously I was doing early stage startups, but also consulting for large companies, but then also doing advisory work and consulting for founders on the side. And I realized too, it's product is really interesting and so different in a corporate setting than it is as a founder, especially even for founders who have done product roles before, because we work with them as well, where they kind of come in being, hey, I've done product before, this is fine, but you've never done product where your resources are so extremely limited and it's not your main job. Like product is a huge part of your job, especially if you're building a product growth company, but you also are a CEO, so you're also doing sales. You're also fundraising, right? You're doing all these things. And so learning how to make decisions when you're even more resource strapped than you used to be and how to get those feedback loops and how to make decisions is really hard, but we have expertise in that. And so that's a lot of what we do with coaching founders. 
And one of the things that I found in my own entrepreneurial adventure was that, yes, it's a great question. Obviously, what is the problem? And I saw an amazing speech once by the founder of Waze where he said, fall in love with the problem, right? If, if you know the problem through and through, then you have the solution. And so that's stage one, that, that you have to assume that there is a problem. And this kind of relates to my next. The second is who has that problem, right? So those are the things you have to establish. And then what I sort of discovered was, do they want that problem solved? Yeah. Because the answer is not always yes to that question. And where one of the biggest, this is my advice to anyone doing a startup right now, is that if you have an app or a product or whatever that requires an, an enormous behavioral shift, it is going to be incredibly hard because people do not like change. The brain is not wired to accept change. It is wired to default to its, its you know, habitual past. So my experience with that was I knew the problem. There was an actual scientific problem. I had created an actual scientific solution to it. And people perceived that they had this problem, but the, the thought of a solution was too much to get over. And it would have required so much behavioral training that it, I would have spent my first five years in business just personally explaining people how to use it. So that was my takeaway that, you know, you have to like either build on an existing behavior or solve, make an existing behavior easier. But if you are trying to change behavior, it is very, very complex. Yeah. Go ahead. No, I, I completely, I completely agree with that. And I think that happens a lot with, at least that I've seen more B2B companies, right? Because I think, especially in a business context, well, it saves them money. They're obviously going to use it. And it's Sometimes they don't want to save money or they don't want to save time, right? Because if their job is to mainly do this thing that you're taking from four hours to two hours, that means that they got to figure out other things to do, or they might be worried that they're losing their job, right? So I think to your point in this conversation around consumer behavior, I think it's, it's not even just consumer behavior, it's human behavior, right? And that's a big issue with technology at the moment. And even when I'm seeing a lot with kind of everyone's new interest the the global obsession around AI right now is it largely discounts humanity in it. And that is really concerning both from someone who knows the consequences of doing things like that, but also for it's actually I have I have some friends who are writers and so they're doing the WGA strike right now. And what's interesting is as I've been learning more about it is how studios are really driving towards using AI to write scripts and to really move writers out of the process. And I'm like, but what will that result in? <laughs> sure, you'll make more movies and television, but is that good? Will, will people be interested in those things? And also AI right now is only capable of building off the data sets that exist, right? So as things move on, you're not getting more writer content, you're just recycling things that have already happened over and over again. Yeah. Like, are you going to build a sustainable business off of that? And so I think what's interesting is I see this a lot with founders too. And actually in any company, right? I think people forget too, that you can actually make money and exist for some, a short-term period for months or years. 
ignoring all of these things. It's not like a day two, if you ignore your customers, you'll get shut out a lot. And what happens, what will happen with things like AI, if it continues to largely just ignore the humanity part, it's not going to be today that the effects are felt. It's going to be years or decades from now. And then, you know, it's, it's already happened. And so how do you go back from there? Um, and it, it kind of goes to your point about change, but I think humans, as much as we're encouraged to dream are really bad at forward thinking and thinking about the consequences of their actions. And I think that's a really dangerous part of technology in terms of where it is today is that people aren't often thinking about, okay, what are the consequences of doing some of these things? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really funny because literally an hour ago, I did a podcast with a writer who we spoke exactly about the AI issue. And we came to this, I said, well, what, you know, what the hell kind of scripts are you going to get? There's no nuance. There's nothing interesting. I've used chat GPT and I've used some of even the other sites that are, are excellent at writing. I would never read a script from those things. You know, it's so bad. No offense, but it's really, really uninteresting content that it's delivering because it lacks soul. It lacks nuance. It's using the most obvious word that would go there, which is that that's not good TV. The, what's good TV is, you know, the unexpected or the, the, the shade, the word that you're like, oh, I never thought that's a, the perfect word for that moment. So yeah, I'm very interested to see how that's and, you know, the thing is with the human brain is that it's always convenience over conviction. And this is it in anything, right? So I had this conversation when I did a, uh, I did a talk on, on human behavior and it was, you can have, or, or talking about the, what a consumer says about sustainability and then what they do about sustainability, right? Now, if you give me two products on the same shelf, one is 450 and the other is three, but this is sustainable. I'll pay the 450 because I want to feel like a good person. If you tell me you have to go to the store down the block to get it, I'm buying the three yeah. <laughs> because I don't have time. It's too much work. I can, I can rationalize it out. And this is also what's happening with, with AI is it's exciting. We love development. We love newness. We love our toys. Dopamine hits every day. Oh, cool. Look at what this thing does. Um, I don't think most people realize that they're going to be out of a job because of AI. I, you know, we work in production in, in advertising and I was playing with this AI tool that does headshots and one oh, of the, yeah. One of the people that worked with me, she's like, it never occurred to me that we're not going to need models anymore. I'm not going to need a model. I'm not going to need a photographer. You know, if I want to, I can replace everybody and make a, a relatively decent execution for a hundred bucks, you know, instead of half a million. So so yes, humans are not very good at predicting their own behavior, which is a, a whole other episode. <laughs> yeah, but even even with that, too, like, I I I personally don't agree with that. It will happen. I think it's an option that could happen, right? I think it's an option that could happen that all of you know that we can have models anymore. We won't have writers anymore. But also, it 
I think about this all the time. It reminds me also when people are insistent that driverless cars are gonna be everywhere and in 10 to 20 years, no one would be driving anymore. We'd all be in driverless cars. And I was actually applying for a program with First Round Capital. They did this master class with product managers in New York, basically on the premise that product people are the most, people most likely to start companies in the future, which I think three of us did actually. And I was like, I'm gonna do what you guys do. But like, they're a, a great organization. But anyway, I was in my interview and I was, they asked, the prompt was around driverless cars. And I went on this whole rant because I was fundamentally, they haven't thought about the consequences to the past 60 years of, or 60 plus years of driving culture. The culture around driving is around you being in control of the machine, right. being open road. That is decades of marketing and decades of a relationship that has been built. And now you're just saying, okay, guys, actually buy a car and just sit in it. Right. Different mindset. And so for me, even with this ASAP, I definitely think there will be some jobs that are eliminated. There will be changes, but I always treat it as that's something that could happen. And that's something because humans, you know, do, they will resist. And I'm, I'm very curious to see in which ways. AI will get adopted in which ways it won't, because like, there was all this excitement about like, a million chat GPT grew to like a million plus users, but people were making jokes on Twitter. They were making Hallmark movies about Christmas trees and like, joke resumes. And a lot of people were using it for cover letters, which is actually I think is great because cover letters are dumb. Um, yes. <laughs> but you know, so it's right. And so it's, and it, it was interesting about chat GPT too, right? It's kind of going back to that first example I said, where they built a solution and they're not really sure what the problem is. And I got right. an with a, another investor about this where I was all the problems it's been talking about so far that it's saying solve are solved are not like primary problems right it's like at the end of the day right you could get a headshot from ChatGPT, and but that's and that's like a problem right but that's not like a you know venture scalable company right and it's still not good enough to do really replace massive photo shoots and or like they're really funny <laughs> yeah, they're like all the papers and everything, right? Like, again, people are mostly making jokes out of this. No, they're not paying to make jokes, right? And then there's all these companies trying to build off AI right now, right? And I'm like, but if you're all using the same tooling, you're not going to be able to build a moat. And if your only differentiator is that you have AI, anyone can do this. And I'm not investing in that either. So you have to right. figure out what's the actual moat here. And so again, but this isn't thinking through the consequences. And so I'm really curious about the solution that's being pushed everywhere around AI. And there's like, all right, guys, tell us what the problem is. And there's billions of dollars being floated into it. I'm just like, hmm, how will this actually all shake out? And it's, it's funny, even the, the narrative has been pushed so much that it will take jobs, it will do this, it will do that. And at least for me, I'm keeping the mindset of, it could do these things. I wonder, and I'm curious what will actually happen. Well, I definitely think there are tools, the AI tools that have come out that are incredible. There's one that is for video editing that's amazing. And coming from someone who, when I was in film school, we had to physically splice the film and tape it together. You know, the fact that I can edit by deleting a sentence on the Word doc is mind-blowing chat gpt the writing stuff i i like to write my own stuff because i get to have my tone of voice and i read the tone of voice of the thing and it it's comical you know it's so bad it's funny 
So I, I, but I see although the biggest industry that I've seen popping up so far around chat GPT is people selling prompts, figuring out how to prompt it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, but also again, kind of going back to what you're saying, AI has been around for decades, right? And so there are forms that we've been using for a long time that people just didn't really think about it as AI. So again, I, I'm not, I'm not here to say that AI isn't useful or isn't something that should be adopted, right? But I think the way it's been talked about as just being this mass takeover of everything is, I think, premature. I just, I, I, again, I think humanity can get involved. Just because a technology could do something doesn't mean that humans will engage with it. And so I'm curious to see what actually will happen. I think, again, kind of that, that, that convenience thing, right? I've been thinking a lot about truth and what if what is true nowadays and it's interesting to see how much just saying something repeating it over and over again right. sort of it true right and that's like a big thing in tech that's a huge thing in tech people will say the same things over and over again whether or not they're true and it just kind of becomes true right and i i just personally i'm so i don't think anyone needs to agree with me on this i'm just i just personally i'm i i to be like, okay, is that really true? If so, why? And if I don't think it's true yet, then just maintaining a healthy level of skepticism and, and curiosity about what could happen. And I think that's interesting because it's, I, I don't remember who said it. I don't think it was a nice person. I remember they were part of a fascist re regime. So, <laughs> but they said a lie repeated enough becomes the truth. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think and, and actually this is a perfect way to sort of close out the conversation is that the person who gets to decide whether AI takes over us or doesn't is the consumer. <laughs> and so once again, underlining both for companies and for consumers themselves or for humans themselves, you have the power to ultimately decide if this, if it happens or if it doesn't happen. So before we go, can you share, Victoria, where people can find you if they want to learn more about your, your VC? Sure. So I'm at LinkedIn at Victoria Kennedy. We have an Instagram. It's at, at STH Ventures. And then our website is seedtoharvestvs.com. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Erica. This is great.